Ladies and gentlemen, you are listening to The Currency. This is episode number 56056, August 9th, 2020. This episode title is called Home Coming. No, Housewarming. Housewarming. We are in the new house. What is the new house? What am I talking about? Well, anybody right now that is watching the podcast live on YouTube knows that I started a second YouTube channel. So previously, I was doing both my typical videos and live streaming on one channel. But I was finding that a lot of people that had found my channel initially for the typical videos, business stuff, uh, branding, brand insight, commentary, and so on, uh, were not necessarily loving the live streams. Now, on the other hand, there's a group of people that love the live streams, and a number of these people are here today, like George and Pauline and Omar and a handful of other people, like Pyens with Zero and um, and Christian and just Frederico and just a bunch of people that show up week after week. And so I thought, you know, I don't want to quit live streaming, even though every time I live stream, I lose audience members. Like I, I have subscribers just drop off because they go, I'm not here for a two hour uh, live stream with Mike. I, I want a five or 10 or 15, 20 minute video with some insights that I can use in my life. And that's fair. I mean, I get it. Like I don't have time. You know, people are like, oh, you got to watch Joe Rogan. And I love, like, when I hear Joe Rogan, he's great. I don't have three hours to sit and listen to Joe. And, and part of the reason is because the kind of work I do. Like, if I was doing more traveling, if I traveled every week, like, driving back and forth, or if I was able to do work that didn't require a lot of thought, then I would listen to Rogan, hands down, in, in about five to ten other podcasts. But a lot of the work I do is thinking work, and I'm not doing you know hours of driving or commuting every day, and so I just don't have time to listen to this stuff. I, I struggle doing deeper thinking work when someone else is in the background talking. I can't even listen to music with lyrics if I'm trying to do thinking work. And so, uh, so there's that. So I understand when somebody says, look, I signed up for your content, but I, I don't like getting hit with oh, you know, at least once a week, an hour or two hours. A video, um, podcast video. The second reason I started this second channel, so one is so that I could just move the currency over to its own channel. By the way, that channel is called Mike Gaston Live. Anybody watching knows that right now, but if you're listening later and you want to check it out, just uh, go on to YouTube and look for Mike Gaston Live, or you can go to my channel. It's linked to my existing channel, Mike Gaston. Just go under channels and you'll see it. You can check it out and subscribe there. This is the first uh, live stream, first video that's going to go up in this channel. That's why we're calling this... Uh, uh, housewarming. We do a little housewarming party here. But the other thing that I wanted to do, I like live streaming so much. And one of the things I like about it is you don't have to prepare. It can be very impromptu. And I don't mean that in a lazy, in a lazy way. I'm a, I'm a bit of a perfectionist. And um, let's say there's a news story. Let's say there's some branding thing that happens. I want to jump on that story. And the problem with, uh, with typical video is then you have to research it. You have to outline it. You have to write a script. You have to perform the script. You have to read it. It can take um, it could take tons and tons of takes. You could spend an hour to get a five minute video. You could do an hour of recording. Then you've got to edit it down. You've got to edit, add in images and sound effects and music and so on. And, and when you're all said and done, you could be I could be at least other people are better than me, but I could be eight ten hours in for one video that's maybe six minutes ten minutes long. Well, if there's a news story breaking. I don't necessarily have the time to do that if I want to hit that story. And I, in the past, have wanted to do a live stream, just throw up a quick notice like, hey, I'm going to schedule this thing for later tonight. We're going to talk a little bit about the breaking news about Tesla, as an example. The stock just hit, you know, whatever, you know, or whatever the news of the day is. And then you could just jump on and have a 30 minute or a three hour talk if you want to with your audience on that topic. And to me, that's really exciting. 
But I knew that every time I live stream, I was losing my audience base. And so I thought if I have a second channel and people elect to be part of that channel, knowing that this is a live stream channel, then I don't have to worry about losing people. I mean, if look, you're always going to lose people. You can't, first of all, you can't keep everybody happy all the time. And secondly, your life doesn't revolve around me. I don't own you. I have to earn your eyeballs. And, it, and, and we all change. I'm going to change over time and you're going to change over time. And that means you might get tired of me after a while. You might go, you might say, hey, Mike was really helpful to me. I love listening to his content, but I'm in a place right now where I'm just not getting anything out of it. I recognize that. I can't, you know, and, and so my desire is that I never lose anybody, but I'm, I don't go to bed at night worried that I'm going to lose people. I have to be faithful to who I am and to my values and to what I think is, you know, valuable and interesting and so on. And I'm bringing that to the table and I hope that other people feel the same way. And if they do, fantastic. And if they don't, I get it. But if I got this second channel set up and I had the freedom to live stream here without concern over the format or the style of information, then it gives me a little bit more freedom and I can do more impromptu streams. They don't always have to be the currency. You know, I'll do the currency once a week, uh, like today, Sundays, but, um, you know, maybe there's some brand thing that I don't necessarily want to do 10 hours of preparation to create a static video, but I want to just hit this topic. I think the, this channel is great for that kind of stuff. And so hopefully this will be a, a, a win for everybody. And if the channel gets huge, great. And if it doesn't get huge, that's fine too. I just like live streaming. The fact that a handful of people show up once a week to hang out, chit chat, have some fun, maybe throw some funny comments my way. Uh, maybe jump in, little Q&A here and there. Really refreshing to me. And um, if that's all it ever is, that's more than enough for me. Uh, but if this channel grows, great. And the other channel, I really want to see it grow. I want to free it up so that I can put some content out there that I think that audience really wants. I'm working on some video essays, working on some really great stuff on branding. And I, I have some high hopes for it. I'm excited about what I'm doing. But I think this will allow both channels to kind of be what they need to be. And allow me to create the content that I want to create without worrying about, you know, one impacting the other. So Pauline says, I didn't bring any wine. That's okay, Pauline. I've got, I've got a bottle uh, of um, kind of a, almost like a sparkling white from Catalonia near Barcelona uh, region in Spain, chilling in the refrigerator. So right now it's 4.20 p.m. Eastern time. And when this podcast wraps up, I'm going to uncork that bottle and pour myself a refreshing glass of sparkling white wine, because that's what one does in the summertime. Oh, man, it's so good to be alive. What a, what a blessing to be alive. And um, I'm grateful for the show. So I spent a few minutes explaining what's going on with this podcast, why I've called this homecoming. This is probably going to be a shorter podcast episode. I'm not going to go crazy today. There's so many different things we, you know, have been tracking in the news. Uh, I believe this is day number uh, uh, 27, maybe I'm just making this up as I go, uh, that I have not heard from big boy. So I'm not sure what's going on there, but big boy yet to get in touch with me. Uh, Omar says, cheers. You, uh, and I don't know if Omar, when you say cheers, if you mean you're taking off or if you're agreeing, but either way, uh, bless you, my friend, thank you for coming by. I hope you'll stick around if you can, but if it's like three in the morning where you are, please get some sleep. Uh, you can always catch this conversation later if you had some rest. Um, I want to do some more stuff covering news stories, et cetera. We've got things like, you know, we talk about brands like Big Boy. Last uh, episode, we talked about Kodak. That was kind of fun. Um, I even asked a friend afterwards, a, a local a guy, I'm like, do you think that I was too, because he caught the end of the podcast, do you think that I was dragging Kodak too hard? Was I too harsh, too critical? He said, no, you sounded like somebody 
who is who loves uh, Kodak and is frustrated that they aren't doing what they could do. It's like a parent. You know, a kid brings home a, a report card. It's not very good. And the parent knows the kid is capable of better. And uh, oh, Omar says, okay, I got it. Omar's saying, cheers, he's saying, enjoy your wine. Yeah, I got a little ways. Thank you, Omar. I'll, I'll enjoy a glass. I'll, I'll toast to you and the crew uh, a little ways before I have some of that. But um, by the way, speaking of, uh, yeah, and George says, I think cheers is what you say when you're having a glass of wine. Absolutely. This is, this is, <laughs> this is the problem with live streaming. It exposes how stupid one really is. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you're in the moment. It's like I'm reading the comments. I'm yammering away and I'm like, oh, wait a minute. Of course, that's what you're saying. But on the other hand, when people say cheers, sometimes it's it's a goodbye, like cheers, uh, all the best. Uh, cheers could be hello. It's a very English, uh, British kind of thing to do. So I wasn't sure what was going with that. With that. Um, a while back, a handful of weeks ago, I tried to go 30 days with no alcohol. I uh, and may have mentioned that on a podcast episode and... Um, that was a really interesting experience. So I said, okay, I'm going to do 30 days no alcohol. And there was a few reasons why. One of the reasons was, um, one of the reasons for me was, I, I like I might have a drink or two. I'll go through spurts. I'll go through spurts. That's a technical term for uh, where I might go days without having a drink. Uh, maybe on a Friday, I go, oh, it's Friday evening. Maybe I'll have a drink. Che- you know, cheers, celebrate the the week. Um, I may not even drink again till another week or so. So I'll go through periods where I don't drink that much at all. Then I'll go through other periods where I might have one or two drinks every night for weeks on end. I might have a, a beer, I want to say, through most, most of July. Um, in fact, I did a video shoot. Uh, they asked to shoot a video at my house. There's a videographer that I use on a pretty regular basis. He's become a friend, uh, Caleb Parker Cinema. And um, he said, hey, I want to, I've used you in a number, or you've used me for a number of photo and video shoots. Would you mind doing a testimonial? I'm like, no, I'd be happy to. He said, can I come over to your house, set up and and record you there? I said, sure. We've got this kind of really cool, uh, great room, if you will. And so he came over, set up. It took him about two hours to set up. I put on a suit. Uh, You guys may have seen, at the same time we shot my channel intro, I'm wearing like a three-piece suit with no tie. And um, so he he, uh, shot that video for me, but he was really there to do his uh, recording me for a testimonial. And and I thought it did a a fine job giving him a testimonial, if I do say so myself. As we were breaking down, he broke out uh, some beers. He's like, hey, I brought these along. I thought you might want to try one. It was this organic beer from the state of Maine in the US. I forget the name of the beer, but it was an IPA. And it was like really good at like very citrusy, like really clean, refreshing grapefruit taste. And I was like, oh, this is so good. And so, and it was a warm day. So we're drinking beers as he's tearing down, chit-chatting. And like, I had that beer and it just kind of got in my head. I was like, that was a really good beer. And I went on like literally a four-week IPA, six-week IPA tear. I was like drinking IPAs every day. You know, hot day, mow the lawn, come in, boom, IPA. Maybe a second one right before dinner. Uh, I was having a drink every night before bed and and I wasn't hitting it hard. Like I wasn't drinking to excess, but it struck me. It's like, wow, I'm drinking all the time now. Like every night I'm having a, I'm thinking about it. Like I want to have a beer and I'm not even a beer, big beer drinker. I used to be, but I'm more of a wine, um, maybe gin, scotch, like, you know, mixed drinks drinker. And, uh, so I thought, you know what, I'm going to try to just go a month and I knew I could do it. I thought, but I'm going to go a month and no alcohol. 
And as soon as I thought that to myself, I had this weird reaction. Like I, I felt like, no, like there was something inside me that said, don't do that. And I thought, whoa, that's a little weird. Now I'm not talking about, (laughs) I'm not talking about, uh, Rosemary's baby here. I'm not talking about demonic. I just mean like there was just something inside me. It was part of me. It was my mind that just said, I don't want to do this. And I thought, okay, if, if that's how I'm reacting, I need to do this. I I can't let some beverage and and a drug, let's, let's be honest, uh, dictate, you know, my behavior. I thought if I'm, if I'm really anxiety ridden about not drinking, that means I probably shouldn't drink. And so I thought I'm going to go 30 days. I'm just going to go 30 days, no alcohol. So I was doing fine. The first week or two, I was really surprised at how much I was thinking about having a drink. Now, I wasn't like handshaking. I wasn't struggling. I just was like, wow, I'm thinking about the fact that I'm not drinking. And of course, anything, when you tell yourself you can't do this, then that's what you want to do. That's just our inner two-year-old saying, you know, you can't tell me what to do. But, you know, that subsided. After a week or two, that subsided. Now, I drove out. I was, I was away for a week. I was out of town. Uh, doing some client work. And I said to myself, look, if the owner of the company says, let's go grab a drink, I'm going to have a drink with him. I'm not going to sit there and go, well, you know, I'm doing this thing and I'm not drinking. I'm not going to play that game. I'm hoping he doesn't ask me because if I get through this week, then I've only got one more week to go and I'll hit my 30 days. But if he does, I'm going to, I'm just going to have a drink with him. I'm not going to make a deal about this. And, uh, wouldn't you know, he popped into the office one day around three, four o'clock and said, Hey Mike, let's go grab a beer. Now it's important. This, um, it's actually a time that he and I get to catch up. I get to fill him in on the work I'm doing. I get to give his, get his input. He'll ask me questions on things that he's concerned about, uh, with the business and so on. So it's an important time together. And I thought, okay, now I just as easily could have said, Oh, I'll just have an iced tea. I could have skipped having a beer. But, but there is a social element. Sometimes when you're sitting down with somebody, uh, most people, if you say, look, I, have a, I don't drink, most people are really gracious enough to say, okay, cool, because they don't want to be a problem. If you say, I don't drink, there's either a religious reason, there's maybe, you maybe have had alcohol abuse issues in the past, maybe you have moral or ethical objections to drinking. And so most people respect that and just don't, don't drink. But then what happens is the, uh, that puts that other person in an awkward position. They don't know if it's okay for them to drink. If you're an alcoholic, are they causing a problem for you? I just don't want to go through all that with my client. So when he said, let's grab a beer, I grabbed a beer. But I figured I'll just keep going. So when I got home, I just continued on. So for 30 days, I had one beer. That's essentially uh, the moral of the story. What's the moral of the story? So what did I learn about myself? One of the things I learned, because I really thought about it, is um, when it comes to drinking, and I'm not sure why this is even a subject. It wasn't anything I planned on talking about today. But when it comes to drinking, you know, I enjoy drinking, but one of the reasons I wanted to quit, and I think one of the things I discovered is I'm trying to be more productive as a person. And alcohol is a depressant. There's just no question. It's a depressant. And I'm a lightweight. Like, I have one beer. I have one glass of wine, one, one uh, cocktail. I'm tired. And I think I, it's part of it's because I work so hard that when I do take something like that, like, my system just takes a hit. So I'm not a drink all day kind of guy. If I have one or two, I'm ready for bed. I'm, uh, I'm tired. And, and so, you know, you finish up work, you, you crack open a cold one at say five, six, seven o'clock. Well, that means I can't, I'm not going to do anything the rest of the evening. And in, you know, in um, summertime or winter, whenever, you know, evening is gold. I mean, there's so much you can still do. The sun's up and uh, I'm trying to be more productive, not just, 
not just building doors on chicken coops, but writing and producing content and so on. So that was one of my reasons. Now, one of the things I discovered was that I was more productive, but one of the things that I'm attracted to with alcohol is its aesthetics. The aesthetics of drinking, the, the brands, the colors, uh, the implements, the glasses, the labels, there's something, something about drinking that's actually quite attractive. Now, being a drinker or being a drunk is not attractive, obviously, but there's a whole aesthetic, and uh, you put together a beautiful-looking cocktail. Uh, I don't know. There's just something. Uh, there's an aesthetically pleasing aspect, and then you get into things like the history uh, of a cocktail, the history of of a of a ingredient, the history of a grape or a growing region. It's fascinating. So that's kind of the kind of the uh, attraction. All right, that's a long soliloquy. About And this, that's the second time this week I've used the word soliloquy. That's a long soliloquy on drinking. Not sure how I got there, but um, that is what it is. So let's talk about homecoming or housewarming, I should say, housewarming. You know, how important is it for a brand uh, to be in the right house? What does that even mean? What does it mean for a brand to be in the right house? I was thinking about that a little bit when I set up this title. I thought, well, what is, what is housewarming? What's a... What's a homecoming? What, what, is, what is a house when it comes to a brand? And I was just thinking about the situation I had here where, you know, there's an expectation that my audience has had. I've talked about brands before being a promise and on the other side of the coin, an expectation. You know, the brand is making a promise to its audience. And on the other side of that coin, the flip side, the audience has an expectation from that brand. And... Um, if, if you want to think about branding that way, it's a nice way to simplify it. There's more to branding, obviously, than just that. But I was thinking about this podcast and saying, okay, what is the, what is the promise of my content? Uh, not just this podcast, but my content in general. What is the promise of this of that? And, and, and is the podcast fitting the promise of that one YouTube channel and so on? And, and uh, you can do the same thing with your stuff. I mean, if you're running a brand, you know, it's good to think about these kinds of things. You know, what is it that people are expecting from me? Uh, you know, I know George, for instance, you run a hotel, you know, what is it that your audience expects from uh, you guys in the hotel? Other people watching may run businesses, uh, maybe you're running a digital marketing agency or you're trying to start a, a company. What is it that your audience expects from you and what is it that you're promising them? And it's a good, it's a good lens to use to look at what you're offering. I did a, I did a podcast just a week or so ago with a guy named, um, a guy named Sean uh, oh, I'm going to go blank now. What's Sean's? I'm going to get it for you while we talk. But uh, I was interviewed on this podcast by Sean. I th- oh, Sean Lowry. That's right. Sean Lowry. And uh, Sean and his girlfriend, I should say his fiance, own an embroidery company down in South Carolina. They sell embroidered clothing online. Pretty cool little company. And he's been a viewer of the, of the channel of my content for a while. And he reached out and said, hey, I'd like to have you on my podcast. And we talked a little bit about uh, expect, expectations and promises and, and uh, interesting conversation. I, I published a link to that in my social media, but I'll, I'll throw a link to that podcast in the, in the description below. But I, I just think it's so important to be aligned. You know, it's a good lens to look at your business and say, what promises are we making? And are we keeping those promises? This is one thing that I advise clients when they talk about positioning their company. I'm like, look, don't position yourself uh, somewhere that you can't deliver on. You usually have like a year or two. Like if you're going to make a promise, 
you've got a year or two to deliver on that promise. And after a while, people just stop believing it. And I, I've been guilty of this. You know, I mean, you make certain promises as a business, you make certain promises as a person, as a content creator, so on. And you've got a little bit of grace period. People are willing to give you some time to figure it out. They're willing to give you some time to deliver on what you're saying you're all about. But if you, if you don't get there, if you just keep making that promise, eventually people tune out. They just ignore you. You become like the boy who cried wolf. And um, I mean, it's pretty important. George says, because I'd asked about promises. For me, the main question, if you are selling something emotional, like a hotel, restaurant, et cetera, or some, et cetera, something cold software. Um, so there's going to be a second part of this question. I'm just going to wait for it. So for, for me, the main question, if you are selling something emotional, like a hotel, a restaurant, or something cold, like software, et cetera. Uh, I'll just wait for, I'll wait for the second part of that question. We'll answer that in a second, but, but um, I, I'm going to jump ahead and guess what George is asking and, and say, I don't think it matters. I mean, I think it does matter on a certain level, but I think whether you're selling something hard or soft, whether you've got a hard good, you know, you're selling cameras or t-shirts or baseball caps or what have you versus a service like a hotel or a restaurant an experience or something uh, immaterial, like something digital, like software or an app, all these things, they still have promises that they're making and they, and the audience still has an expectation. And, you know, the question becomes, well, well, how do we know what those things are? And the other thing too, to keep in mind is the experience has more of an impact on the brand than people realize. Uh, you can sell something that's not 100% perfect. Um, you can sell something that's not 100% perfect, but if you make a great experience out of it, people will, will imbue your product with the qualities of the experience. You could also sell something that's phenomenal. You could sell a technically excellent uh, piece of hard good, hardware, equipment, uh, technically excellent piece of software even that just far outstrips anybody else's offering. And yet at the same time, if the experience of acquiring that offering, whether it's a hard or soft good, uh, using it, interacting with your company, uh, customer service, if the experience all around is painful or negative, it doesn't matter how great your product is. Uh, at the end of the day, it's the experience that really defines the brand. It's not just the technical capabilities. A lot of people that are in engineering, they don't necessarily understand this. They think, well, we've built a better mousetrap. We've built something more superior. We've built something that's better than our competitors. It's like, yeah, you ex absolutely have. You really have done that. But you're not there yet. You have, not, you have not finished the race. You haven't crossed the finishing line by just building something better. And it's not a matter of like, now we just need to get, you know, we need to sell it, you know, listed online. You have to create an experience around this. You have to understand the journey of your customer and all the different points that they potentially touch your company. And if you can make that customer experience, that journey phenomenal, if you can make it remarkable, and, and it's not hard to do this. The hard part is just stopping for a few minutes and trying to map out those different points. But if you can add these little touches, little flares, if you can design and orient your business and the experience of engaging your business and the experience of using your product from the customer's viewpoint, then you're going to just, you're going to beat your competition hands down. There's just be no competition. As, like a lot of folks creating an offering create what they think something should be. Well, you know, we designed the software. It's better 
it's better if you do it this way. Well, you, you say it's better because you're the designer, but are you designing for them or for you? Have you talked to your customers? Do you see how they use something? Uh, I'm a big proponent even for ethnographic research. Ethnographic is kind of like field study. You're going to watch people, quote unquote, in the wild using your product. It could be as simple as a potato peeler or as complex as sophisticated software. But as you watch them use it and you observe and you, and you even talk to them a little bit afterwards, you start to realize that they're using the software for different reasons. They're trying to accomplish different things than you envisioned. That's a good thing to happen. You want that to happen because you start to get insights. And, and one of the dangers when you're in an industry for so long, if you're in a business for 10, 20, 30 years, is you, f you feel like you know it all. You can't help it. This isn't me knocking. If you've been in an industry for 30 years, I'm guilty of it. Look at the color of my beard. You, and those of you just listening, I will give you a hint. It is not, it is not black like it used to be. It's, it's quite, quite white. But you look at the color of my beard. I've been in my work for many decades. It's, it's a wonderful thing to have all this time and all this experience at my fingertips. I'm, you, know, you become like a heavy hitter. You, you kind of make your bones and you're able to do things that you couldn't do when you were younger. You, you bring more to the table uh, in the snap of a finger. But the, the downside of that is you start to think you know it all. And the world never stays the same. The world's always changing. And so one of the dangers for me and, and people like me, and you don't even have to be an old timer. You could be someone who's young but has been in your industry for many years. You, you kind of take it for granted. You feel like, well, I know how this works. I've done this for, you know, for, for, for months and years. I've done this a thousand times. And we kind of get numb to the reality of the experience of our customer. And so there's an opportunity to kind of get out of our own skin and get out of our own head and start to see things through the eyes of our customer. It's really an amazing, amazing process to be able to do that. Uh, let me go back to George. George is, um, well, first let me see. Pauline says, I feel like it's easier to shape the soft experience. Um, yeah, maybe. I mean, I, it, it can be. The, the challenge with the soft experience is it's ephemeral. Like you can't hold it in your hand. So there's no way for someone to physically conceptualize your product they, and, and physically conceptualize. That's like a strange combination of words, but really your, your product is abstract if it's soft. It's, it's a concept, it's an idea. Um, even if it's software, if it's digital, I can't hold it and feel it. I'm, if I'm using your software, I'm either using Apple or, or a Google or a Microsoft product to, to interact with it. Um, there's a user interface, but it's only visual. I can't really touch it. I can't hold it and feel it. So on some levels, physical products have a leg up because they can involve more of the senses. That's one of the things that Apple was really smart at, uh, about. I mean, you could, you could be highly critical of Apple. A lot of people are. And, and uh, I, you know, I'm, I'm an Apple guy. I have been since I've been young. I've used both systems. But, but Apple got the, the physical part right. That it's, there's a beauty. There's a sleekness. Uh, there's a whole design aesthetic around the Apple physical devices um, that is superior. Now, you can still argue that the product's not superior. I don't, I mean, I don't want to make that argument, but the point being Apple, the physicality of the Apple product gives it a leg up, which, which something like a piece of software and app does not have. So on one level, I would agree with you. The soft, you can you can create that experience on the soft side, but 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 it but it has to overcome the lack of physicality for a lot of people, and I think that can be challenging. So I agree with you on one level, but disagree on another. Uh, I, I, the problem with the physical stuff is it's cheaper, I think, with a soft product to modify, to change it, to tweak it. So let's say 
the interface um, needs work. It's cheaper to change that software interface than it is to put out a new looking laptop. The money that goes into creating the dyes and molds and machinery and tooling to put out a new laptop versus uh, what it takes to change the software interface, there's just no contest. So it's easier to modify and update. But there is something about a physical product that really, um, really is stunning. That's why sometimes I'll actually encourage clients to do direct mail. Uh, direct mail like is, isn't the best, but sometimes being able to hold something from you, a physical thing from you, helps on a certain level inside that person's mind and their heart they, to, to experience you. Like if I send you a physical letter that you can hold, it just, it just carries something different than if I send you an email. And, and, it, and it's kind of like, it just, it creates a physical representation of me. And, and so that's where, if I'm going to send you a letter, I want it to be on really good paper. I want the letterhead to be really beautiful. These are, because it's representing who I am physically to you. It's very subtle. This is not, this is not like, um, this is not obvious necessarily, but it has a big impact. It's subtle, but it's quite impactful for the average human. And so I think that's important. Let's go. Uh, so George says, um, you have to adjust the brand language, how you talk to your customer, I think. Uh, I think you're right, George. I mean, absolutely. There, there is a difference. And I think each, each product and service is unique. And I think the reason is because each customer base is unique. It's not just that the product is unique, but the people using it are unique. Like, here's an example. There's a handful of people right now on this live stream. If you look at YouTube as a, as a video platform, there are millions and millions of people on YouTube, both consuming and creating, if you put them all together. But for some reason today, right now, on The Currency, I'm Mike Gaston Live, there's a handful of people. There's, there's a host, there's me, and there's you guys in the audience, and we're interacting with each other. You're interacting with each other in the comments. I'm interacting with you guys. The reason that you're here today for my video is probably different than the reason that other people are on YouTube at this very moment that are not watching this video. There's some people that are watching other streamers. There's some people watching news stories, some people watching sports. So although we're all kind of selling and consuming video, uh, we have different reasons that we're here. And I think that's true for anything, whether it's soft or hard. But I think you're right. I think the challenges are different between a hard good and a soft good. But I think if you, I think the grass is always greener on the other side. You know, the people selling hardware, they're over there going, boy, this is tough. Um, you know, I've got some clients that sell consumer goods, physical goods. It's a challenge. And on the other side, I've got other clients that are selling more of a service. That's a challenge. And part of it too is there's so much noise in the marketplace. So much noise. How do you differentiate yourself? How do you get people to to even hear your message? Um, how do you get people to give you some attention? How do you get people to give you a try? Uh, you know, if, if you've got a consumer good that's kind of a, um, a low-cost consumable, you know, like it's something that people use, like I don't have a paper towel client, but I've had a paper towel client. How do you differentiate? People, people don't think about paper towels. They just buy them and use them and throw them away. How do you get people to pay attention? How do you differentiate your product if you don't want to just sell on price? On the other hand, you've got uh, folks that are selling a luxury good. And at a time like this where people aren't spending money, how do you get them to say, you know what, I'm going to make that investment? So there's always a challenge. Right now, George, for you in the, in the hotel and restaurant industry, I can't imagine how difficult this is right now. I mean, it's just got to be so tough right now to be marketing something. I do have a client that's directly impacted by COVID. And we're talking about this. We're actually getting together this week. We're going to do a little bit of um, brainstorming, do some work um, 
workshop sessions to think about how do we reposition and uh, message the company based on the current climate because this is uh, this isn't just like dragging his finances down a little bit like he's in the crosshairs with this thing as as are a lot of businesses and you gotta you gotta do something you can't just sit there and wait um, you, you got to respond somehow and so we're gonna try to crack that code and figure it out it'll be it'll be a really fun invigorating discussion and I'm confident we're gonna come out on the other side with some good ideas but. Uh, you know, what worked yesterday will not necessarily work tomorrow. And I think that's true for anybody. The market's always changing and it can be very frustrating, but it also creates lots of opportunities. Um, Pauline says that hard good goes out and you don't have much say in how it's received. No, that's true. And it's a big commitment, isn't it? I mean, you, you create a hard good, you're kind of all in. I mean, there are ways to mitigate risk. There are minimum viable products and tests and so on that you can do before you really commit to it, uh, pilot programs and all that stuff. But uh, it's it's a big investment versus some kid in a basement with a computer that puts together some piece of software and throws it online. George asks, do you, uh, do you do in normal marketing A-B testing like they do online? You can. I'm just thinking of an example. So yeah, I mean, you can run two different ads uh, in a newspaper, let's say, for example, you can um, equip your sales teams with two different messages. AB marketing is not unique to digital. I mean, that, that was a thing that was out there. In fact, there would be like Procter & Gamble and some of these large consumer groups would do AB style testing where they would have certain cities where they'd pre-release a product and, and package it, label it different ways, message it different ways to see how it would perform in these different cities. Uh, but AB testing is much more common because it's so inexpensive to do right now. And uh, that's... One of the things I think that the AB or the digital really brings to the table that others don't. Uh, Pauline says, I just mean if a hotel or restaurant experience is going bad, you can turn it, uh, turn it, adding, uh, or sorry, turn it around. Yes, that's correct. I think you can, but um, I think the hard thing with any of these, it's, it's always hard when you're in the middle of something to see clearly. And I think that's for some outside help. This is not a pitch to hire Mike Gaston. But, but there is something about having some outside perspective that can be really valuable, especially in a crisis time, because you're so, in, you're so inured to your business and your market. You know it so well. When things change, it's hard to understand why, because you're in the middle of that. You can't always have an objective perspective on that. Uh, or the, or any, any subjectivity that you have is, is so immersed in what you're doing that it's, it's hard to, to be creative and innovative and synthetic where you kind of combine different ideas into a new idea in the midst of it. And um, so I would agree with you. It's either easier to turn around than, you know, you put a, a television out there or a, a car out there, you're really committed. You can't just turn that around. And so Pauline, I think your point is well taken. Uh, on the other hand, I, I don't, I mean, so let's say this, it's relatively easier but I don't think either of these are easy. Neither is easy. I think each one has its own challenges and each one um, has a lot of pitfalls that are easy to fall into. But you've got to have deeper pockets, I think, for a lot of the physical goods that, that we take for granted. There's no, no um, question there. George says, we're having a really good summer in the hotel apartment business. Our main guest group in Austria are Germans. And the Germans are not traveling to Turkey, Spain, et cetera, this year. That's right. You know, I talked about being down in the Finger Lakes uh, at the open of the show before we went uh, live with the broadcast. And um, 
that's the same for New York. I mean, our governor has said, well, if you go to, I think he's made, there's a list, you know, there's 50 plus states in the American Union. And he said 33 of them, if New Yorkers go to 33 of them, they have to be quarantined for two weeks. And so a lot of New Yorkers are like, well, screw that. I'm not, I'm not going to sit in my house with an ankle bracelet on like some convicted felon. Not that you get an ankle bracelet, but, um, but a lot of New Yorkers are just holidaying in our own state. Now, we have a beautiful state. There's a lot of places to, to, to visit, but a lot of that money staying local. And I guess coming off of COVID, that's not a bad thing. Keep your money local and spend it in your own economy. Not a bad thing. But um, if people had plans to travel, and often your international travel, you plan out. If you're in America, you, you, if you're going to take a cruise or you're going to spend some time in Europe, you don't just do that on a whim. Some people do, but typically... You're saying, well, you're at least six months, if not a year out, in planning a trip like that. And so there's a lot of people that plan these trips that are just, uh, they, got, they got left without being able to go on their holiday. So this is going to set things back for a while. George says, the only big hotels in this, only the big hotels in the cities are suffering because they have mainly guests from Asia, USA, Arabs, UK, et cetera. Yep, that's right. So all the international travelers can't. Uh, they, they, they can't come. And so these big hotels, these big brands are empty. But George, I'm thrilled to hear that you're thriving. And uh, my wish for you is that, that you continue to do that. I, uh, I'm so glad to hear that things are going well. That's, that's really encouraging. It's, it's great to hear that the, and I'm not assuming you're tiny, but the little guy versus, you know, the Marriott's of the world in the Four Seasons. It's great to hear the little guy win. I want to hear more of that. That's I'm all about that. I'm not anti-big guys. I, I'm fine with Four Seasons and Marriotts, they, they have their place in the world economies, but uh, the world economy. But I'm glad to hear a private uh, free market uh, hotel owner and operator, along with his wife, is doing well. That's a win. When you're doing well, George, then mankind is, is doing well. And that's really the story of free markets. I mean, free markets, they're strong, not because of the Apples, the Googles, the Four Seasons, Marriotts of the world. They're strong because of people like you and people like me. It's people like us running small businesses, a handful of employees, maybe a little family business, maybe just uh, a single solopreneur with no employees. But, you know, these little companies with three employees, 10 employees, 50 employees, these are the companies that make uh, our economies, our, our respective economies strong. This is what makes America so strong. It gives it depth. It's not, it's not Apple and Google. Yes, our stock market's phenomenal. We've got Trillions of dollars a wash just flowing back and forth in our stock market. You know, praise be to the markets. All bow down and worship. That's great. I'm not hostile to the markets. But at the end of the day, it's, it's the private business owner that really makes the world go round. It's the woman with an idea that has the guts to put herself out there and start a business. It's the young guy who says, I can do better. I'm looking for a job and there's nothing out there that really makes, uh, makes me happy. There's nothing that makes me want to drive forward in life and be successful. I'm going to start my own thing. That's, that's the dream. And not only is it the dream for that individual, it's what makes this country and countries like it so great. It's the ability of people to take risks and to create wealth. Uh, it's these small businesses. It's people living life on their own terms. It's not for everyone, and I get that. I'm not saying like if you're not running a business, you're you're not making you know Canada great. You're not making America great. You're not making Austria or the United Arab Emirates great unless you're running a business. I'm not saying that. I'm saying it's those people along with other people. There are all kinds of classes of people and all kinds of people contributing. But when you talk about the economy and you talk about uh, liberty and you talk about wealth creation. 
It's the little guy. It's, it's the hotel operator with his wife that's saying, yeah, we're busy right now. Dude, if it were not for you, where would the economy be? If it were not for people like you in Austria, where would the economy be? Like the, the, the government can't print enough money. Like every time the government prints a bill, that does not equal more wealth. Every time the government prints money, it's diluting the wealth. The, the, the money represents the wealth on hand. The money is not the wealth. Money is not like currency. And there's a reason I named this podcast The Currency, because I believe that ideas have currency. There are, the ideas are valuable. Uh, they, not all ideas. Some ideas are, are destructive. But the, the good ideas, powerful ideas, they, they're wealth creating. They're valuable. And they have currency. They can move. It's like, it's like money that flows. It's wealth flowing. And th- that was kind of the idea behind this. But, but money is just a way to make wealth current. It's a way to make it flow. You know, you, you work really hard and you create something valuable and I work some, really hard and create something valuable. If I want to come stay at George's hotel, which I hope I can do someday, I have to have created some wealth on my end that I can trade with him to say, hey, I'm going to give you some of the wealth that I created to experience this amazing thing that you've got over there. And uh, to do that, well, how do I do that? Like, well, I'm, I'm a consultant. So we could just say, well, George, I'll trade some of my consulting time for a week's stay at your lovely hotel and I'll eat at your restaurant. And I'll probably sneak out for some steaks and beer with you later when the, when the wives aren't looking. But uh, to be able to do that, I, we could trade. But that's not, George might say, that's fine, but I can't feed my children with, with, like, if you give me consulting time, that doesn't help me feed my kids. I need a way to get wealth that I can use to buy groceries and pay my bills. And that's nice to trade with you to barter. And that's what, where, where money comes in. So, you know, you create money so that it can represent the wealth that we've already created and move around. Well, when the government prints more money, they're just diluting the wealth. They're, they're not creating wealth when they create dollars. They're just creating more dollars against the existing wealth. Now, you can create new wealth. There's, no, there's not a finite am, amount of wealth. Human beings create wealth, but people have to be creating it, etc. That's where you get inflation, when you've got more money than wealth, than than. Anyway, I'm going to get myself in economic trouble here if I keep going. Uh, I'm going to get outside my pay grade. My point being, it's people like George and his wife and other folks watching this podcast that are, that are keeping our economies going. It's not the government's printing money. We're going to have to pay that price down the road. Right now, it's kind of a temporary shot in the arm, but it's, it's not based on anything real. It's not like the government said, we found a whole cache of wealth And so now we're going to print money and distribute that wealth out to everybody. They just said, no, we're just going to print the money. The wealth doesn't exist. We're just going to print it. And you can use it for now because no one will, we won't think about it. But later we're going to, you know, those, those crows are going to come to roost and we're going to have to deal with them. So there's that. Guys, I want to wrap up the podcast. We're going to keep talking here. So if you're on the live stream, we're going to keep talking, but I'm going to wrap up today's episode of The Currency. Thank you so much for joining me. I love you all. If you haven't done so already, make sure to subscribe. I feel like a pitchman every time I'm doing this. All you have to do is go to Spotify, Stitcher Radio, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, anywhere that fine podcasts are provided. Look for The Currency and uh, hit that subscribe button and you will get this podcast delivered to you hot and fresh once a week. If you want to participate in the live stream, just go to YouTube and look for Mike Gaston Live. You can subscribe there, jump in and join the fun. Guys, uh, for everyone listening, I love you all. And I'll catch you in the next episode. Thank you.